This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. Pat O'Keefe with you, hour number two. We've got Tom Bauer, Harvey Cruz producing the show tonight. Larry Hardesty on at 10 o'clock in his usual spot. I'll take you through uh, the remainder of the evening. But we still have two hours to go together. 1-800-919-3776. So we did an hour on the Yankees. The bottom line for me for the Yankees is I'm going to do a little side-by-side comparison later on between the trade deadline moves that the Yankees made and the trade deadline moves that the Mets made. And it's entirely unfair to do that side-by-side comparison after 10 days. But you know what? We're not always fair here. It's kind of interesting because over the course of these 10 days, everything that could have gone wrong for the Yankees moves has. And you have to include in that what Jordan Montgomery did to the Yankees, shutting them out for five innings on Saturday night in St. Louis. The Mets moves, on the other hand, more subtle, but very interesting. The Mets, 10-2 to winners at City Field today. Uh, the Mets now, their record, uh, it just c- continues to move into a stratosphere where we're not used to seeing the Mets record, and that's why this is so much fun. Mets are now 73-39. and 39. You have the Dodgers at 76-33, and 33, so that's a difference of four and a half games, but six games in the loss column. The Mets right now with their 652 winning percentage are the second best team in baseball. They're the second best team in the National League. They're the second best team in baseball. Right now their lead over the Atlanta Braves for first place in the National League East is seven and a half games. They've won six games in a row. They recently won seven games in a row. They came out of the All-Star break, dropped their first two games to the Padres. Since then they have gone 15 and 2. 15 and 2 over their last 17 games here's what I love about what they did this week this three-game series against the Reds had all the makings of a letdown all the makings of a letdown the Mets not only didn't let down they didn't even give up a game let alone lose the series they didn't even let the Cincinnati Reds believe for a moment that they could win a game in this series I mean, you talk about going out and taking care of business, especially on the heels of what they did to the Braves over the weekend and taking four out of five. And right now, they're just taking on all comers. I mean, they really are. They're beating top teams. They swept the Yankees in two games at City Fields last month. They just beat the Braves in four out of five at City Field. Middle of the road teams. They swept the Marlins in Miami three games last weekend. And then they're taking care of the bad teams. They swept the Reds just now. They took two out of three against the Nationals. I mean, they are, they're doing right now exactly what, um, what the Yankees did earlier in the season when the Yankees were building up their humongous lead that fortunately for the Yankees they can use as a buffer right now. That's what the Mets are doing right now. No hint at all of a letdown in these three games against the Reds. They have a total of five runs. And I know the Reds... They traded off Castillo. Um, They traded off Naquin, who came back to hurt them today. They have a lot of um, some of their quote-unquote major league players, like Tyler Stevenson, their impressive catcher, are injured. So they're a depleted team. They're a team that was clearly in sell mode and got rid of a lot of its major league capital. But still, now you look ahead for the Mets this weekend. 
Philadelphia, and then you go to Atlanta for four games. The Philadelphia series on Friday, you have Scherzer. On Saturday, you have DeGrom against Aaron Nola. And then on Sunday at 140, you have Chris Bassett against Zach Wheeler. So that's your weekend. Philadelphia's played much better. They're right there in the hunt for the National League wild card. And then you go to Atlanta for four more games. And guess what? Within those four games, Scherzer is scheduled to start one of them. And DeGrom is scheduled to start one of them. And then by then, now you're halfway through August by then, after these seven games, three home against Philly and then four, uh, four in Atlanta. See where you are by then, especially in regards to the Atlanta Braves. Because, again, the Mets' first and foremost goal is to win the National League East. The road is much harder if you try to navigate it as one of the wild card teams. Now, trade deadline moves for the Mets. Under the radar, you know, for the Met fan, a little underwhelming perhaps you know no JD Martinez no lights out closer to stick in the bullpen right in front of Edwin Diaz to form a nasty combination at the back end of your bullpen you know what they did was they shored up the designated hitter position Vogel back of course from the left hand side Darren Ruff from the right hand side and now Tyler Naquin who is kind of the forgotten transaction, but I've always liked Nick when I always thought he was a solid player. Vogelback has played 14 games for the Mets. He's got a 1044 OPS in 14 games. He's got two homers. He's got seven runs batted and he's batting 333. And then Naquin homers today against his former team. And he now has three home runs in his 10 games as a Met. These are the under-the-radar moves. If you do the side-by-side comparison now between both of New York's teams, one of them is trying anything to get back on track, and it's just not working right now. The Mets are just trying to tinker with what was already a successful team. Of course, then one name I didn't mention who started the game on trade deadline day was Jacob deGrom, the biggest quote-unquote trade acquisition there is. But even these somewhat minor moves that the Mets made, you know, they didn't go out and got the cat. They didn't go out and get the catcher, Wilson Contreras. They didn't bring him in. They stayed the course there. They just tried to improve around the margins. They identified one spot in their lineup, and they did it pretty early by trading for Vogel back in the middle of July. But they identified one spot in their lineup that they really wanted to improve. They went after it. They improved it on both sides of the plate. Vogel back from the left-hand side. Rough from the right-hand side. You throw in Naquin to add depth and a little versatility. And it's worked because everything they're doing right now is working. You know, you talk about Buck Showalter and what he has brought to this team. And I have been saying, and I, again, am not the only one who has said this. Buck Showalter was their most important acquisition, even more than Max Scherzer. Although it's close. Max has been pretty darn good. But just the tone that Buck has set in that clubhouse. It's not an accident. Let's look at the Mets who have been here before. Forget the new guys. Forget Scherzer. Forget Marte, who I love and I think is going to be such a big-time, big-game player for the Mets down the stretch. Look at the guys who were here before. All right? Lindor last year was a disaster. He was bad from the beginning. 
He gets into the squirrel fight with McNeil. He gets into the stupid thumbs down thing, getting all wrapped up in Javi Baez's nonsense. And what's Baez up to right now, by the way? Incredible, right? He would start to finish. It was just, and most importantly, Lindor didn't perform last year. Lindor today tied the franchise record for RBIs in a season by a shortstop. He's got 81 RBIs. It's August 10th. And he tied Jose Reyes' record today. In fact, let's hear Buck Showalter on Lindor tying that RBI record. It's pretty cool. No, I mean, it's to be continued. I know uh, he'd sacrifice everything for a chance to be the last team standing. That's kind of where he's wired. You know, when you put it in that context, all the great shortstops that have played here, makes you realize how hard it is. You don't think there were great shortstops here? Some good ones. Maybe not. Oh, I got to suck that in. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, I w- we should go down the list of all the great shortstops in Mets history. Kevin Elster. He had some records, I think, from from what I hear hearsay anyway. Uh, Rafael Santana, uh, you know, Reyes had had a very good run in New York. Bud Harrelson. Um, anyway, let's move on to Lindor. Uh, how he felt about tying the Jose Reyes record for most RBIs in a season by a Mets shortstop. It's a blessing because whenever you can do something cool, it's, it's, it's a blessing. Be next to Reyes, somebody I grew up watching. It's. It's great, but I'm here to try to win the World Series. That's all I have in mind. Along the way, things like this are going to happen. Um, I thank the good Lord for it. Well, he very may well win the World Series, the way he and his team are playing. But my, my point on Lindor, Alonzo has been really good for the most part, but he had a downstretch last season. Uh, he started off the season slowly and in a slump. Um, obviously, Edwin Diaz's first season in New York was a disaster he was good his second season he was very good last year and now he's lights out this year Jeff McNeil came on very strong at the beginning but had a really bad year last year and you were wondering what he's going to be Brandon Nimmo was a borderline all-star this year he's been solid and improved every single year but he's playing his best right now and here's my point is it any coincidence that Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo, Diaz, Nimmo, all of these guys who we have watched in a Mets uniform for the last two, three, four, five seasons, they're all playing their best or close to their best right now. None of them are having an off season. None of them is having a down season. Who's the Met that's having a down season? I mean, J.D. Davis, he's gone. Dominic Smith, he's not here right now. But who's the prominent Met? All of the prominent Mets who were here before, who we have watched, Lindor and Alonzo, the most prominent everyday players in that lineup. Is it a coincidence that they're having their best seasons in Mets uniforms with Buck Showalter as the manager? It's not. This is what managers, good managers do. You set the tone you set the culture, you set the environment, you identify the guys in your clubhouse who are going to lead the way, and your job in, in today's game, and this is where Buck deserves a ton of credit, because he's been managing in baseball, he was a rookie manager in Major League Baseball in his mid-30s 30 years ago, in 1992. Think about how much the game has changed since then. He has changed along with it. And... Again, he was sitting there for three, 
freaking years waiting for another opportunity. And who was the caller last hour we had who said the only place Buck didn't win was in Baltimore? That's not true. Buck took the Orioles to the playoffs two or three times after they hadn't been there for like 20 years. He's won everywhere he's gone except for Texas with Alex Rodriguez. And, you know, take that for what it is. All right, let's open up the phones again. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Sergio and Wayne. Hey, Sergio. How are you? Hey, how you, how you doing, Pat? Thanks for having me. So I was just listening to the conversation about the trade, and the best trade was Vogelback. Getting a guy that looks like that gives inspiration to everybody <laughs> in the world that you could make it to the, to the big game. And uh, and I agree with you. The Yankees should have gone for Castillo. They they missed the ball there, but the Mets definitely hit it out the park with the trade deadlines and what they did there. Everything's paying off pretty good. I think they're going to make the World Series. It's starting to have that feel, Sergio. And the interesting thing, and thanks for the call, is when you line up the Mets moves side-by-side to the Yankees moves, yeah, the Yankees didn't make the big move for Castillo, but the Yankees moves were still more significant than the Mets moves. The Mets moves were tinkering. They improved one position with two different players, and then they brought in Naquin, who's kind of a utility Swiss Army knife type guy. All right? The Yankees brought in a top of the rotation or you know front end of the rotation starting pitcher in Montez. They brought in a back end of the bullpen guy in Trevino, a middle reliever in Efros, a starting left fielder in Andrew Benatendi. And I'm forgetting someone. Well, that's a good start right there. In terms of... Oh, and Har- I'm sorry, Harrison Bader. Who he, I'm forgetting him because he hasn't played yet. They traded a, a solid starting pitcher for him. So that's, that's six guys. That's a quarter of your roster. The Yankees turned over 25% of their roster at the trade deadline. So that tells you right there that Cashman knows that they had an opportunity this year. And what what I was saying in the weeks leading up to the deadline, you don't get opportunities like this every single year. You know, the Yankees are in the playoffs almost every year. It may feel like they have an opportunity to go all the way every year, but no. It's been a long time since they were playing as well as they did in the first half of the season. I didn't say that they should have traded for Castillo. A caller did last hour. I didn't disagree with him. All right. From the reports that I've heard as far as what the asking price was for Castillo, it seemed very high. But at a certain point, you've just got to cash in your chips and go for the championship, especially, as we all know, if your team has won one World Series championship in 21 years. One in 21 years. I mean, think about that. The Yankees last century, (laughs) if you want to do a comparison to those days, you know, the Yankees were bad the first 20, before they got Babe Ruth. They won zero championships in the first 21 years last century. They're only one ahead of that pace right now. Let's get Simon in here. Simon in New Haven. Hey, Simon, how you doing tonight? Hey. Hey, how you doing? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay, 
Well, first of all, I wanted to make a comment about that caller about Brian Cashman. I've been saying we got to get rid of Cashman because he's a lousy general manager. All that guy cares about is climbing down the walls and sleeping outside for charity every year. Get rid of him. And also, we got to get rid of Boone. I yeah. mean, this guy proves time and time again he just does not know how to manage. I'm telling you, he's worse than Girardi. We have got to get rid of him. What's your what's your Ozzie what's your Ian beef? All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. What's your beef with Boone today? Like, what's give me give me a specific, Simon? I know you don't like Boone, so tell me what is it about him right now that you don't like? I don't like how he manages. I mean, he he finds he, he always seems to find a way for this team to lose. He always makes excuses. I mean, these I mean, Nestor Cortez pitches his heart and soul. I know once in a while he gets tired, but look, you should let the guy pitch. I mean, how tired can you be? Nestor Cortez I mean, is Nestor Cortez is tired. To That's going to be an issue down the stretch of the season. They I don't I don't think in a normal game, Simon. And thanks for the call. In a normal game, Cortez wouldn't have started that seventh inning today. This is what I mean by the trickle-down effect from other games. Cortez had to go out for the seventh today. Look, he was pitching a no-hitter into the sixth with, I think, two outs. The only hit he gives up is a two-out home run. It's one nothing. Inning over. Clearly, he's getting a little tired. He's at 93 pitches. Go through his game log. That's what Cortez throws. 90 to 95 pitches every game. But again, last night, you used Chapman for the second night in a row. You used Holmes for the second night in a row. You used Trevino. You used Efros. You used Loizaga. And I don't think you wanted to use him again anyway because is not pitching well right now. Boone had no options today. That's not Boone's fault. I'm not absolving Boone. All right, but this specifically, this game today, that's not Boone's fault. Boone tried to push the limit with his starting pitcher. Cortez got tired. He didn't have it in the seventh. And then when he had to take him out and bail him out of a jam, the last thing any Yankee wants to see is Albert Abreu coming out of that bullpen. But that's what—that's my point. You've got a team with the third highest payroll in Major League Baseball, and your options in a game like this, in a game like this that would have been one of the best wins of the season considering how you've played lately. Certainly one of the best wins of the second half of the season. In a game like this, your options are stretching Nestor Cortez for an extra inning when he doesn't usually do that, and then when that didn't work out, your plan B was Albert Abreu. That's a tough spot for Boone. Again, I'm not absolving him, but when those are your options and you have the third highest payroll in baseball, but why, why is that? Well, that's because you've got $17 million in Zach Britton on the injured list right now. And for some reason, Ron Marinaccio, the kid out of Toms River, New Jersey, who's been excellent this season he's been almost as big a revelation as Nestor Cortez but because he's got options he's in the minors right now this is where the Yankees in my mind run into trouble all right they did this they screwed over Miguel and Duhar earlier in the season and now they just did it to Marinaccio if you can play up here you can play all right now the Andujar thing wasn't that big of a deal because Carpenter was lights out but the only reason that they sent Marinaccio down to the minors is because he had options. You know, Albert Abreu didn't, Wandy Peralta, Litke, the other guys that are on this, uh, in the bullpen right now. And that's a problem. You lost a game because of that. Was it worth it? Maybe in Cashman's mind it was. But at some point, we've got to look at this Cashman tenure. I know we've gotten a couple of calls on that today and this year and throughout the years. And... At some point, you've got to wonder why, if you're spending the money, the third highest payroll in baseball, why are there so many holes on this team? You know? 
why don't you know who your second starter is? Second, I'm not, you know, the Mets have seven starters. You know, they don't even have room in the rotation for David Peterson or Tyler McGill when he comes back. The Yankees don't know who their second starter is right now. All right, give Montaz some time. Give him at least a second start. But you see my point, I hope. Anyway, let's take a break. Um, we'll get into the Mets. We'll hear more reaction from them uh, on their sweep of the Cincinnati Reds. Both teams are off tomorrow. Uh, Yanks against the Red Sox this weekend at Fenway Park. And the Mets are welcoming in the Philadelphia Phillies. Both teams still in first place. Both teams right now going in opposite directions here on 98.7 ESPN New York. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. NFL preseason starting uh, here locally, at least this weekend. For most of the NFL, we did have the Hall of Fame game last weekend. Um, we've got the Giants in action against the Patriots uh, tomorrow night uh, from Foxborough in uh, their first action of this preseason. And the following night, Jets in Philadelphia against the Eagles. Uh, that game will be uh, broadcast right here on 98.7 ESPN New York. I believe our pregame coverage begins at 6.30 that night. It's been great. Uh, if you've listened to the K show this week, hearing Mike Tannenbaum on, uh, you know, love hearing his insight. Such a smart guy about all things NFL related. So he's been a really good listen this week. Uh, obviously, the big news out of the Jets camp this week has been Mekhi Becton. And, you know, it's only his third year in the league. There's certain guys that, Unfortunately, especially in a sport like football, especially with a guy the size of Becton, uh, a guy that big and that injury prone and with all the potential in the world, just unable. You've seen this before. Guys like that sometimes are just unable to ever get their career on track and it could end so quickly. And, And I'm not predicting doom and gloom for this kid. It's just his third season, but now it looks like um, he only played one game last year after a very promising rookie year. And then it was a very, very up and down off season for the kid. Uh, his weight fluctuated. It ballooned at one point. You weren't sure if the Jets were going to even draft a offensive tackle with the fourth overall pick in the draft because they were concerned whether or not he was the long-term solution. They did go with Sauce Gardner. That kind of gave a little lifeline to Becton. But just think about... Two years ago, Joe Douglas, offensive line background, building offensive lines. And in that 2020 draft, picking up Becton, who his rookie year, you could make the case of the four tackles who were picked in the first 13 picks of the 2020 draft. You could make a case that Becton played like the best of them, or at least the second best of them during his rookie season, even though he wasn't the first one picked. And then he backs that up with Elijah Vera Tucker, who's now ensconced as a starter on that offensive line those are the right moves and this is why it's so difficult to have success in the NFL or in professional sports those are the right moves you know let me talk to the Jets fan or the football fan or the football expert who felt that at the time those moves were made those weren't the right moves I would love to hear what you were thinking at the time because those to me it seemed clearly the right moves and then unfortunately After the promising rookie season, he plays one game last year, out for the season in week one in Carolina, and then gets himself into shape, switches positions, handles it well, even though it's a very, very tough thing to do for a kid 23 years old, 24 years old, third year in the league. Because when you go from left tackle to right tackle, 
What goes along with that is a lot of money out of your pocket. Didn't make a big deal of it. Accepted it. Got back into shape. Committed to his role. And now, unfortunately, appears to be out for the season. So here's Robert Sala uh, speaking about Makai Becton. You worry about all of them. These are young men. And I think sometimes uh, with social media in this world, we dehumanize these athletes in the worst way imaginable. Makai has walked in this building and he has taken every single punch you can get from every which way. And he shows up and he works his tail off and he grinds every single day. He shows up to camp and he's fighting to get himself back in shape. He's got videos of him vomiting and people are throwing shade and he's limping and he's doing all those different things and he's fighting to, for this, for his family, for himself, for his teammates, for this organization, for this fan base and he's doing everything. And then everybody wants to drop him like a, a, a wet rag. That ain't the case. Um, we love Makai. We appreciate everything he's done. And it's, his ride is not over. His story's not over. He's got full support of this organization. And if you're a fan that wants to support him, you're more than welcome. Otherwise, just keep him moving. You know, that's a head coach right there who's not afraid to let it be known that he is aware of the outside noise. I think a lot of times the old school head coach nature of some of these guys, they act like they're above it. The noise, what we do here on talk radio, obviously social media, um, the talking head shows on ESPN and, and, and whatnot. That's an important part of the experience for young athletes today. Right, that's something that a 23-year-old a quarter century ago didn't have to deal with. Not nearly as much, especially the social media component. All right, so the fact that Robert Sala is willing to... Look, he has his guys back. He points out all the steps that Becton has taken to try to get himself back into shape this year. And then on top of it, he points out that, yeah, he's well aware of all the criticism that he's received from members of the media, from people on social media, from all these other areas. And I think that's an important part of being a head coach today, knowing what challenges your players face and have to deal with because they're different challenges than they used to be. I think Makai Becton, his, and look, we're, we're going to hear a clip from Rich Samini, our Jets reporter for ESPN. And it's no secret that Becton is not happy with some of the comments and coverage from him in particular. All right. Not saying what's wrong, what's right, but it's something that has been a challenge for this player in particular. And Samini's not the only one, but that's maybe the most public one that has been out there. But this is something different that young athletes and young players have to deal with than even a generation ago. So I applaud Salah in this case for not being too cool to act like, oh, it's social media, it's beneath me, I don't have time to deal with that. No, you do have time to deal with it because it affects your players. It affects the psyche of your players and how they can perform. All right, so let's hear from Samini. Um, he was a guest on uh, DPH on Rothenberg. Um, and, oh, excuse me, this is him on ESPN Radio as far as what does the Becton injury mean long-term? 
He's got one more year on his rookie contract next year. He's got a guaranteed $3 million next year, so he knows he's got that. Uh, obviously, the Jets are not going to pick up his fifth-year option for the following year, two straight years that he's been out. So it's a really tough blow for Makai's long-term future. I mean, now he's had he will have had surgery twice on the same knee. That's tough. I mean, he's got a weight issue, and when you got a weight issue and a knee issue and you're an offensive lineman, it's not a good combination. All right, here's Samini now on DPH and Rothenberg and how it was a bad day yesterday for the Jets' offensive line. Yeah, it was a sieve yesterday. Five of his first six dropbacks, he was sacked. It wasn't good. I don't know. I guess you could take the positive viewpoint and say the defense had a great day, but, of course, we're focused on the offensive line right now, and it wasn't all the right tackle spot either. I mean, they were springing leaks everywhere. You know, another practice today, and, of course, the first test on Friday against Philly, and the starters are going to play about a quarter. Right tackle, of course, was Becton's spot. He had moved over there. He had accepted it. It was full speed ahead, and now he suffers this knee injury, and it's likely not going to happen this season. Um, Elijah Vera Tucker in the same draft as Becton, uh, or excuse me, Wilson, Zach Wilson, um, his reaction to the Becton injury. Playing times before, he was out there working his tail off every day in the offseason now during camp, OTAs, stuff like that. So, yeah, it sucks, you know. Nobody enjoys it, but all you do is, you know, pray for him, hope he gets healthy, and, you know, move on. Yeah, You know, it's just when you follow a team or cover a team or root for a team, at the start of training camp, literally the one thing you root for is for this not to happen. The one thing you root for is for this not to happen. And now this kid is going to be going into his fourth NFL season, having not played a full NFL season yet. All the talent in the world. Time to turn it around, yes. But it's getting late, unfortunately. Let's go to Arthur on Long Island. 1-800-919-3776. Arthur, how you doing? Good, thanks. Hey, Pat, I like what you do. So I was trying to get through to uh, Chris and to Mike T. Here's my question. In college, Iowa, Michigan, even uh, Alabama, all the Hawk Mollies, they wear the double. It's a, I think it's a Lennox Hill brace was from Joe Namath. They wear them on both knees. Now, this is a new injury for Beckton because it's a fracture. But how come he's not in the double braces all the time? I don't know. Can you find an answer for that, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't answer it right now. That's for sure. Uh, I heard a caller earlier call up and ask Tannenbaum why the Jets weren't more cautious with Becton. And, and, you know, without being there, he says, I've just got to think that the organization took all the necessary steps um, in, in terms of protecting this player coming back from an injury and a bumpy offseason and, and reintegrating him. I mean, look, this is... You, you have to give the organization... These injuries happen. It's not like this this is a once-in-a-blue-moon injury. Unfortunately, these things happen, especially in a sport like football, especially when the guys are this big. And he's as big, if not bigger, than most. You know, these things happen. It's really, really unfortunate, though, because the tone around Jets camp this year has been... Best supporting cast around a young quarterback, whether Sam or Zach, in like five years. On paper, the best offensive line. It seemed like everybody was kind of 
you know, set in their roles now that Becton has been shifted over to the right-hand side. Now, in a lot of respects, it's back to the drawing board. We'll see what they do to fill that role. You heard Samini describe the first practice after Becton's injury. The offensive line was a sieve. You don't like hearing that. So we'll get our first look on Friday night and our first listen on Friday night right here on 98.7 when they take on the Eagles in their preseason opener. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. The AFC East is going to be really interesting this year. I mean, you have Buffalo, who is many people's favorite to go to and in some cases win the Super Bowl. You know, they were uh, a kickoff away from eliminating the Chiefs last season and advancing to the AFC Championship game. And who knows how that would have played out them against the uh, Cincinnati Bengals as opposed to what happened with the Chiefs against the Bengals. I think if you play that Chiefs-Bengals game 10 times, I think the Chiefs win eight of them. They just completely mismanaged the end of the first half. They let Cincinnati get back into the game. And by the time they tried to start to play against Cincinnati, uh, had its pass rush going, and the Chiefs could never recover. I think if the Chiefs handle that differently, they go back to the Super Bowl once again. But I also think that if the Bills handle that kickoff differently um, and uh, hold on and protect that lead at the end of their game against Kansas City, then they could have very easily gone to the Super Bowl themselves last season. They're set up to do that. You know, for me anyway... It's difficult to go all in on a team that hasn't done it in a very, very, very long time. And that's that's the Buffalo Bills. You know, I'm looking at some over-unders and I'm looking at some bets, some futures bets for this NFL season. And am I confident in the Bills to get through the AFC and get to the Super Bowl this year? I, I can't say that I am, you know. I've just seen something happen to this franchise too many times that I'm not willing to go out on that limb and say, yeah, this is the year it's going to happen for them. Now, it could, talent-wise, quarterback-wise, the head coach has been there for a while and he's built that thing in the right direction. But the AFC East as a whole, you've got Buffalo, you've got Miami with Tyreek Hill with these uh, weapons around Tua Tungavailoa. You know, Tua has never been 100% healthy in the NFL. He's gotten a lot of criticism for his lack of a, throwing arm down the field. But in college, he was one of the most accurate passers in history. I understand he was in basically a pro system in Alabama playing against other college kids. But I'm not willing to discount everything that he did in college when he was seen as, before his injury, a can't-miss prospect. Can't-miss prospect. And then you have New England. New England's always good. New England's, even last year, they get a rookie quarterback, he plays well enough. They have enough guys around him to get them to the playoffs last year where Mac Jones doesn't have to do too much. And then you have the Jets. You can make you know Buffalo is going to be good. Miami, I think it has the potential to be good. New England, you can never confidently say they're not going to be good. So that's troubling from the Jets perspective. Where is the opportunity to move up? Not necessarily in the standings, but where's the opportunity to move up in wins? Especially with the early season schedule for the Jets. But regarding the Patriots, what they're doing right now is very odd in terms of their coaching staff. Now, Belichick has always done things differently. 
you know, Josh McDaniels is in Las Vegas now, and he's he stayed. He didn't accept the job and then leave like he did with Indianapolis a couple of years ago. He accepted the job. He's now the Raiders head coach, so he's gone. So what happens to Mac Jones? What happens to that New England offense? Now, Jones last year was brought along perfectly almost um, by McDaniels. Um, just the way that he didn't have to do too much, all right? The, the way that he was able to not have to throw the ball downfield too often, all right? Where, where is that leadership coming from now from New England? Because the two guys that are working with Mac Jones right now with the New England Patriots are Matt Patricia, who was a failure as a head coach in Detroit, and before that, a defensive coordinator for the Patriots, who I never thought was <laughs> that special anyway. And then the other guy who's got his hands all over this Patriots offense right now is Joe Judge. So I'm looking at what New England's doing right now. I'm looking at what Bill Belichick is doing right now, and I'm very curious what he's doing. You know, the two great coaches of this era of sports, the two great coaches are Greg Popovich in the NBA and Bill Belichick in the NFL. You know, Popovich has five championships. Um, you know, Belichick, there's no question, there's no peer in this era of football to Bill Belichick. But in recent years, they've both started to do odd things, you know? I mean, you look at the Spurs the last couple of years, and they've completely cratered. And now they just traded their best player, DeJounte Murray, for a boatload of picks and prospects, and they're completely rebuilding. But even the last couple of years, the draft picks that Bella, uh, that Popovich made, the way he made that San Antonio team was not in line with what they used to do. And I understand, you know, there's no more Tim Duncan, there's no more Kawhi Leonard, Manu Ginobili. Those guys move on, and then the coach starts making some odd decisions. That seems to be what Belichick is doing in New England right now. I mean, the fact that he got into the playoffs last year with Mac Jones, a year removed from Tom Brady having won the Super Bowl, was impressive. It's almost like Belichick's trying to prove right now that, yeah, I can get this team to the playoffs with anything. Watch me. I'm going to have Joe Judge and Matt Patricia run my offense. Now, that's got the potential to be one of Belichick's best coaching jobs because who would bet against him and who would count him out? Or it has the potential to be a disaster. Because as I've said many times, when you compare Mac Jones, especially to Zach Wilson, Mac Jones was in an ideal situation last year. And I think there's a very good chance that he's not going to be in that situation this coming season. So does he come back to the pack? Does talent, when you're talking about Wilson and Mac, become more of a factor this season? Very odd decisions being made in New England. Some thoughts on another NFL quarterback who we're going to see week one of the preseason after this break here in 98.7 ESPN New York. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. The Cleveland Browns are opening the preseason against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, the Browns announced on Wednesday that Deshaun Watson is expected to start Friday's preseason opener against Jacksonville. Interestingly, the team made the announcement just before boarding a flight to Jacksonville, Florida. So talk about being able to avoid answering uh, the myriad questions that would come their way. Look, it, they're allowed to do that. Deshaun Watson 
right now, according to the NFL's disciplinary uh, officer, Sue L. Robinson, the former federal judge, ruled that he will be suspended for six games. The NFL is appealing that ruling. But either way, those are six regular season games. So Cleveland needs to see what they have in Watson. Remember, Watson didn't play at all last season because he didn't want to play for Houston even before the snowball avalanche of his legal trouble started to accumulate. He didn't want to play in Houston anyway. So he hasn't played since the 2020 season. They are likely not going to see him until at least the end of October. And if the suspension is lengthened beyond six games, it could be into November or December until they see him. Cleveland has a very good team. They've got a very good team. This is a team two years ago went to the second round of the playoffs. It's also a team that the Jets are likely going to play without Deshaun Watson. So an opportunity there for the Jets. I've always liked Jacoby Brissett. Always thought he was one of the better backup quarterbacks, spot-starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Always felt that with the right infrastructure around him, he could take a team to the playoffs. Perhaps this is going to be the team. Because Roger Goodell has said that Watson's actions deserve a 16-game, a full, a 17-game, a full-season suspension. They warrant that as opposed to a six-game suspension. Who knows if Goodell's going to get what he wants, if the NFL's going to get what it wants on this ruling. I suspect it's going to be somewhere in between six games and 17 games. But it's interesting to me how Cleveland has just, and I understand it's it's a business and the number one job is to win football games. But Cleveland this entire time has seemed to accept whatever rulings come their way. And they're like, outside of what we're told to do by the NFL, the Players Association, whoever is making these rulings, outside of that, we're going to operate business as usual. You know? The contract that they signed to Sean Watson to, they backloaded it. So when he gets suspended and serves those suspensions, most of the guaranteed money on his contract is going to be preserved. It's not going to be taken from him in the terms of uh, fines for missed games. They did that for him. They gave him the largest guaranteed contract in NFL history. They're starting him in the preseason. Now, from a football standpoint, does it make sense? It does because he is your future quarterback. But it's just interesting to me how they have operated here. They have operated completely independent of any disciplinary rulings. They're not questioning the rulings. I'm sure they're not happy with the fact that the NFL is suspending, uh, excuse me, is um, appealing this suspension. But they're not questioning it. They're like, whatever you tell us it is, we'll operate within that. But if we can play him on Friday, we're going to play him on Friday. If we could backload his contract to save him money, then that's what we're going to do. So Deshaun Watson looks like back on the NFL field in the preseason opener Friday against the Jacksonville Jaguars.